How do you expense ecstasy on your expense report? That was not my job. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't done that many of these interviews yet, but this is the first time we've had criminal activity admitted to. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Man, oh, come and get me. That was 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Statue of limitations. (laughs) Yeah. Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything seems to get weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for PJ Harvey and former lead singer for the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is Zia McCabe, bassist, synth player, and keyboardist for the Dandy Warhols. We're going to talk with Zia about blowing bubbles on David Bowie, how she got her bandmates to believe that babies on the tour bus don't smell, and what it's like to star in a real-life mockumentary. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show! It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too yeah, much perspective sh- now. Alex, today we're going to talk about that fuzzy space where reality ends and performance begins. Like back in 1993, that's when my band, The Falling Willendas, began. And we had to deal with a very thorny issue. One of my bandmates had a bad reputation in Chicago. And it was something that we had to address because the opinion makers in the music scene, like the club owners and the people in the media, they are predisposed to not liking our band because of him. I'm not going to say who, and I'm not (laughs) going to say whether it was justified or not, but it was a fact. So we decided to deal with it in a certain way. We chose fake names. I'll just tell you his name that he came up with was Quality V. Huh. And that's the name we used on the first pressing of our album. And your name? <sighs> really, I got I to gotta tell you? you, yeah. <laughs> you, you it's that you embarrassing. Got, you got to tell us. All right. I have no idea why. I must have been watching too much Dr. Seuss or the Lord of the Rings movies, but I chose Rum Dillion. Yeah, you you can't even say it without laughing. It's embarrassing. I'm sorry. You know, and I'll tell you, it didn't work anyway. We were getting interviews with newspapers and they were spending no time on the music and the entire time. And why <laughs> are you called such a stupid name? So we ended up having to repress our first album and incur another $20,000 in recoupable costs just to deal with that stupid decision. I got three words for you on that. Self-inflicted wound. Yes, which would have been a better name than Rumdillion. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been Come edgy. On. That would have tied into the Chicago industrial scene a little better. Absolutely, at that time. absolutely. Yeah. We would be opening for ministry in a heartbeat, <laughs> you know. But you know, really, is Rumdillion any worse than Bono or Sting or or Alanis Morissette? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Actually oh, it come is. On. But you know what? That brings us that actually brings us to a larger issue, Alan. You mentioned Bono. Did you know? His real name is Paul David Hewson. I, I just knew it wasn't Bono, but I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's something like that makes you wonder, is that really any different than Christopher Guest turning himself into Nigel Tufnell for Spinal Tap? No, we don't know that, do we? I mean, none of us really know anything about this, but Paul David Hewson, 
guy, right? Yeah, he could be as right. unlike Bono as Clark Kent is to Superman. Yeah, well, that's true. Being a performer is all about creating your own reality. And you and I both know from experience, life in a band has very little to do with reality. Right, Rumdillion? Yeah, it's really funny. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but it's true, you know, giving yourself a fake name, better than Rumdillion maybe, or wearing shades or even doing drugs, all these things create a layer between ourselves and the selves we try to portray as performers. We do what we can to create a mystique that gives us permission to act cooler than we are, so our audiences think we're cooler than we are. I bet Paul David Houston didn't feel confident that he could be as captivating on stage as that guy Bono. Yeah. Well, this reminds me of a story of an artist I once represented, a guy named A.J. Blackwelder. I never heard of him. I was representing A.J. He was a young, talented, tall, good-looking guy. Great honey voice. He was just waiting to happen. So I called up an A&R guy that I knew, Amos Newman, the son of the legendary beloved songwriter Randy Newman. And I, I said, hey, look, you know, I would love to have you meet A.J., He's a great songwriter. I think you'll really enjoy him. So could we come in and have him play a couple songs for you? And Amos said, uh, sure, stop by. And uh, made the arrangements, set the time. And at the last minute, I called Amos and said, hey, Amos, I'm not going to be able to make it. I've got a conflict in my schedule, but I'm going to send AJ. And then you and I can catch up afterwards. So AJ went and went to the Capitol Records Tower, where this label's office was. And he had his 12-string guitar, and he was ready to impress. This was going to be AJ's big moment. Destiny. This was destiny. This was destiny. And the report I got was that Amos was you know, very receptive, extraordinarily polite. He bobbed his head as AJ sang for him and gave AJ his full attention. And when it was over, they had a little bit of a chat and uh, AJ thanked him. And that was the end of things. Well, okay. So what's AJ doing today? AJ is the co-host of this podcast. Oh, get out of here. You were <laughs> pretending to be AJ and you, oh my God, that is unbelievable. That is balls to the walls. I love I, that. Well, you know, I was a desperate character trying to get a record deal, but I think it speaks to this, this idea that, you know, we all have different personas. We bring them up in different situations in work situations, in family situations with friends. There's a bit of authenticity in all of it, but it's never the full picture. Frankly, Alex, or whoever you are, I have no idea who I'm doing this, doing this podcast with anymore. My entire reality has been shattered by this story. Alan, are you saying too much effing perspective? Too today? much effing perspective. All right. Okay, fair enough. Let's get to our conversation with Zia McCabe. But first, a short break. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course, provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, 
And now our conversation with a rock star who can sell out a show on Saturday night and sell you a home on Sunday morning. It's Zia McCabe, who along with Courtney Taylor Taylor, Peter Holmstrom, and Brent DeBoer make up the Dandy Warhols. Zia, thank you for joining us. It's sort of funny because I was like, we, we tried to do our homework and we were watching some of your other interviews and, on YouTube and things like that. And I thought, man, I wonder if we're sort of like, it's just overkill, right? Like I was asking you to do a prep interview and then we sent you a production sheet. And then, you know, I just thought, you know, she's done this a gazillion times, right? This is I just, just saw the production sheet. So that didn't get read. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Dog ate my homework. If there's anything pertinent in there, you might want to just uh, tell me. Uh, it's a little late now because we're, we're already recording. <laughs> no, it was actually, the number one was wear bib overalls. Yeah, so perfect. It, it, exactly. Coincidences are amazing. Yeah. So Zia, we want to start off by asking you the question that everybody has been waiting for this entire 20 seconds of the interview. <laughs> what is your favorite scene in the movie, This is Spinal Tap? Uh, when the guy is stuck inside the... That weird membrane thing on stage is pretty spectacular. <laughs> what is that? That's a plac- it's a placenta, right? Uh, yeah, God. Wait a minute. It's, I, it's a chrysalis. I really oh, chrys- sh- I, so Those are kind of <laughs> similar. Um, <laughs> getting their new album and being excited that, you know, Smell the Glove is here is, is a pretty great scene. You know, there's this mix of like, what are your favorite scenes as just a movie, as a person watching a comedy? And then there's the... What are your favorite scenes? Because they're just so real. Like Courtney says, he goes, I can't watch that movie. He's like, it's, it's just too real. It stresses me out. <laughs> so. Speaking of stressful, I do want to ask you about a particular scene in the movie. The one where David St. Hubbard's girlfriend meets up with the band with, <laughs> in Milwaukee and proceeds to take over the tour. You know, Janine? Right. She's the Yoko of the movie, right? Right. Exactly. Okay. The patriarchy would like us to believe that the Beatles broke up over a woman. So as a female rocker, I'm going to ask you this. Did Yoko break up the Beatles? Oh, uh, no. I think that the road was rocky before Yoko. Um, As they say, it's nice to have somewhere soft to land. So if you already feel there's an exit coming and you see this place to immediately exit to that has safety and love and and constant validation wouldn't you okay i've got a theory about why the beatles broke up because it happens to a lot of bands it happens to a couple of my bands so i'm gonna break it down for you okay you ready you're comparing your bands to the beatles is that what's happening here (laughs) uh (laughs) okay just go you know it's good our our lyrics were better okay anyways um (laughs) So, John's the leader. Everyone looks up to John. John takes Paul under his wing. They start uh, writing together. Paul eventually gets as good as John, and the collaboration turns into a competition, and that's the greatest time for the Beatles because they start writing Rain and Day Tripper and Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. But Paul keeps going. He has the idea for Sgt. Pepper. Everyone thinks Sgt. Pepper is the greatest thing ever. John is starting to lose his grasp. He still has great songs, but Paul's writing a lot more. And even though some of them are obladi, oblada, a lot of them are great. (laughs) Eleanor Rigby, right? Yeah. And so... John can't take the pressure. Instead of trying to keep up with Paul, he starts undermining Paul to the other Beatles. And then at the very end, 
John turns around and, oh, look at this. The youngest guy in the band is as good as me now too, George. And John says, just, oh, fuck this. I'm done. And he and Yoko just climb in a bag together and that's the end of the Beatles. That's a decent theory. Man, the whole the whole thing of the, the Yoko, it's so funny. That's just a, I doubt that term will ever die long, long after the real Yoko is gone. But man, chicks on the road. It's like, it sucks. It doesn't suck, but it does suck. The way we did it was, look, we're touring enough. We need love in our lives, right? If nobody gets to see any of their lovers, and then you just get grumpier and grumpier and grumpier, and it was getting laid. And then, of course, somebody tries to bring the girlfriend on the entire tour. (laughs) And it's like, get me the fuck out of here. I think our maximum, our absolute max was 10 days was allowed. That That's pretty, I mean, that still feels pretty generous. I think that that was generous and, and sometimes felt like a lot more than 10 days. Sometimes somebody's got a rad girlfriend and they, they know how to stay out of the way and they don't start advocating for their partner and trying to get in on the drama, which you're just going to shut up. <laughs> Um, and then the so you do think Yoko broke up the band? <laughs> well, it's still possible. I mean, sure, I'm sure she. I would say accelerated the breakup of the band. How about that? I agree. Um, I agree with that. And uh, so we would need somebody to sell the merchandise. So I would bring my boyfriend to sell the merchandise, and this went on with an early boyfriend, and then later my husband. So he did merch and then ended up eventually as the stage manager and just sort of ran the stage for us and was loved by all. And then we ended up with a baby on the road. And so we were the whole family on the road. Your your baby or did you just pick one up? You just found one. Yeah, I just found one to bring like a pet for fun. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Did you get to the place where you had like multiple buses? I mean, did you guys have your own traveling accommodations? No, but that was the plan. Right. We were on our way up still, not a a rocket to the moon kind of launch of a career, but we were steadily getting bigger and more successful and in more films and on, you know, charting higher and more countries and bigger festivals. And so I said, guys, it's time I'm going to have a baby. And I had already terminated multiple pregnancies because it didn't fit my lifestyle or career. And this was the one that was intentional and planned. And I had to plan it between the touring cycles. So I finished recording, was it Auditorium? Two weeks before Matilda was born. Six weeks later, we were doing the promo photos. If you see me, I'm wearing like a giant orange uh, communist military jumpsuit. I was quite heavy when I was pregnant. And then we were on the road at a, just a few months in till the, I think at six months till they did her first road trip of all promotional photo shoots all the way down the West Coast. And then we started bringing her and the two bus thing never happened. So what we did was we converted the back lounge into a bed. I mean, it's nice to have a bigger bed, but it's really not the most comfortable. It's the bumpiest. There's a million little lights from every freaking DVD player stereo game box thing (laughs) and everything squeaks (laughs) through the whole night. So I'm just back with this nursing this child. No nannies. Travis was the he was the first one in the venue and the last one out. So I would have Tildy and then the promoter or somebody would find a babysitter to basically hold her during sound check and 
hold her during the show. You know, there's no breaks. That is unbelievable. I mean, is that I'm going to make a joke here, but was that like on the rider? <laughs> Child care? Yeah, it'd be like the promoter's daughter would come down, you know, and I'd just be like, look, here's my baby. <laughs> go play sh- Take a shot of tequila and go play the show. Wild. Milk would go bad in the fridge, especially in Europe. Their refrigerators suck. I'm trying to find formula in Greece and I can't read the ingredients. And, and it's just like... <laughs> It was insane. I I don't know how we got through those times, but Brent said, so Brent, our drummer has two kids now. And he's like, Zia, I was just thinking back on you on tour with Matilda as a baby and, and on through until she was about five. We never heard her cry. We never smelled a diaper. How did you keep all of this child business from us? We were very, very, very concerned about putting anyone out because our family depended on the grace of being able to all be out on the road together. This is both of our jobs. But it was such a wonderful thing to have been acknowledged for because the effort was immense. Because of course she cried and of course her diaper stunk. She just she did what babies do. And we just made sure that nobody else ever suffered the burden of parenting our child. Honestly, given the number of tour buses that I lived on with lots of people over X amount of time, it says a lot, I think, about the generosity and, and connectedness of you all as a band and as, as a organization, assuming that you had some of the crew on the bus or whatever, too. I mean, and yeah. that is that I, I can't imagine many situations where people would go along with that. Really nice. Thank you. So she... Grew up on tour and it was it was a really, really amazing thing to share with her. Exhausting. I would never do it again and I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but and also here's another really amazing thing about having a kid on the road. When everyone's bitching and getting pissed off that we're not at the next place yet, or the writer isn't what the writer is supposed to be, or whatever but anybody's in a bad mood about, Tilda's not complaining. <laughs> the two year old's not crying about it. And it shows you what children, people on tour can be. And it, I think it really helped the rest of us grow up. She didn't care about the, the, the cold cuts being bigger than the bread. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. She didn't care. We're talking about a mockumentary here, right? Now, you have a unique experience of being part of a very famous documentary. And um, I've also read that you guys maybe find Dig more of a mockumentary than a documentary, too. What do you, what do you think about that? 100%. We felt very mockumentary when that came out. It's hilarious, right? It's almost as funny as Spinal Tap to watch some of those antics, and you know it's real, but... When you watch it and you lived it, it definitely feels like that's not how it happened or that's out of context, that constant feeling of that's out of context. And the comedy is in there. If you look at it side by side with Spinal Tap, it's in the right category. But if you look at it next to any film about music and musicians, which is what we thought we were making, there's not a whole lot of making music in the movie. There's just a ton of meltdowns. (laughs) And people that are trying to make music but really need a nap. 
So that was the disappointing part. We were like, where's us being creative geniuses? Like, where's all that stuff? Well, let me say what it is so that our audience knows. Dig is a documentary, and you can correct me, Zia, if I'm wrong, about two bands, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre, who began as friends, but ended up getting into conflict and had a rivalry as one band rose to the top and another band kind of self-sabotaged. Is that a good description? Yes, that's what Andy felt like, the story arc that she needed to put together to make the film tell a story in a film-length situation. But the way she started was it was, I think, 13 bands. I think Fastball was one of them. Huh. And when she met Anton, maybe tw- the 12th band was Brian Jonestown Massacre. He actually told her to film us. I think he said, no, this film is about the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Dandy Warhols. So I don't know if she'd met both of us yet or if he introduced us, but he was very adamant that those other bands were not who the story was about. It was about us. Yeah, there was some rivalry. Part of it was manufactured by those guys, right? They thought that that was really funny to get this Blur Oasis thing going. We weren't part of the game. We just thought that that was like kind of hurting our feelings. And I think you can see that in the movie. We're not really sure what to do with the rivalry thing. Also, we're the ones that all the cool stuff is like happening to and the, you know, the giant craft services spreads at the videos and and. <laughs> Is this all for the dandies? (laughs) That is literally the one line that I remember from the film. I first watched it a decade ago. That stuck with me until I watched it again this past weekend. I remembered that line. Yeah, it's pretty good. Matt Hollywood has some great, what does he go be loved by yourself? He's got some really, come on. And also, uh, uh, is that blood? Yeah. Whose is it? Other people's. (laughs) isn't that an Anton line? I've watched it. You know, any new boyfriend, obviously we have to sit down and watch it. Let's just get this out of the way. I get to have commentary during it. I look at myself and just feel so cringy that I had gotten caught up in this kind of high school drama and was behaving inside of that headspace and taking Andy's cues to be sort of snotty and say not nice things about my friends and they were giving us plenty of reason to right so it was this moment where they're trying to get this rivalry going and and some some true jealousy i'm sure fair and then there's Andy with a camera going how do you feel about that and and you feel kind of crummy and you want to say mean things back and so i see that and i just feel like it's kind of gross at the same time that we're filming all this you know they're all sleeping on my living room floor and I'm sewing curtains for the van to go out on tours with some privacy in there. And it felt very summer camp and sweet and people had their snotty moments, but we all really, really loved each other. And so to see the movie be boiled down to the short period of time where we didn't sucked, you know, and I understand the drama of it. And I understand that it's great entertainment for everybody. But for me, I was like, that's not how I feel about these people. I love these guys. Everyone's a hot mess and, and doing their best. When the film came out, because I remember it, it it made a big splash at Sundance. It like Yeah, it won the Grand Jury Prize. Did it really? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you guys and Brian Jonestown Mesker were both taken by surprise by where it was? Did you hear from them that it was like, whoa, this is not what we expected? Yeah. I mean, here's the initial reaction of me seeing that. Peter and I both, we looked at each other and went, that could have been way worse (laughs) because we were kids 
And we weren't just kids. We were kids getting coked up with the filmmaker, you know? So even if you think you're watching your words, you're not. You're vomiting words all over this woman's camera and microphone. And I'm sure I said some way stupider shit and way meaner shit. And it probably wasn't about the Brian Jonestown. All on the record. I mean, we've thought of getting all those old tapes out and making our own edit. And I'm pretty sure we should just let sleeping dogs lie. Well, hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Yeah, there's another storyline, and this is Spinal Tap, that mirrors the life of your band. The dog and cat relationship between the Dandy Warhols and your record label, Capitol Records. I'm sure you've dealt with your share of Sarah Dennis Eaton Hogs and Bobby Fleckman's, right? That stuff is hard. One of the things I had decided early on, I was like, you know, these people are just working here in this tower, right? They're just doing their job. They're working. There's a million bands. And... If they're looking at this list of bands and they're like, well, that those guys are jerks. Who's at the top of the list when they're calling radio stations? Not the jerks, you know? And so I was like, I think what's really important is having relationships with these people because they're real people. And 
we have real interests and they have real jobs. And so I would put on my roller skates and go to the Capitol Tower (laughs) and roller skate around and go in and visit the offices and meet these people and learn their names and say like, hey, let's let's do this together. And it was really effective at first and it felt really good. And these were people that we would go do things outside of work with. But then when it all changed, I was about half as successful the next time because now I'm busier. And then by the third or fourth, what's the fucking point, man? It's different people every time I go there. And we're just this name on a sheet. And now we're just going based off our reputation from whoever they handed that stack of work to. But it's also, it's interesting because, you know, you don't think that they would cut their nose off despite their face by depriving a band that they've signed from promotion just because they're not nice. You know, I had a problem with my label wanted in our first album, they wanted to release the obvious single and I'm no, I want to release the best song. Right. And I won that argument and that's why no one's ever heard of me probably. (laughs) Right. And did you get less promotion for it? I mean, we ran into that constantly. Yeah. Yeah, No, we were fighting on what songs come out, fighting on who mixes the label. Egos are huge things. Right. And you have an ego and then you have X amount of power and you use your power to soothe your ego and people's careers are on the line. (laughs) We were one of the more disagreeable acts that they have signed, I would say. And we were like, we're going to do this our way from the very beginning. And the first batch of people that worked at Capital when we signed seemed to be somewhat behind that, like they got us. You do your thing. We just want some of the money from it. You know, we want the majority of the money from it. And then it's just constant change of staff and presidents. And the next people didn't. They just tried to kind of force us down that commercial chute. And it was just a huge rub. But looking back on it, I'm like, man, we could have made some compromises or we could have worked through some things that didn't sacrifice our image or our aesthetic or our, our beliefs about music and art and still been a little more cooperative. But we were coming from such a solidly say no to them no matter what, and then maybe agree to a little something. Well, you know, what's funny is Radiohead, when I tour managed them, was on Capitol. Mm-hmm. And their agent was this guy, Wayne Forte, who was the agent for... Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and Bowie and Peter Gabriel. And Creep was a huge hit on MTV. And Wayne and some of the folks at the agency knew much better than I did that the record company would just try to run the treads off these guys over the time that we were touring, right? In terms of all the promo commitments and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they came to me and said, you know what? Our advice to you is say that the band will do three things a day, max. And each person will do one of those three just so these guys don't get exhausted. And so I went back to the record company and said that as though I was the guy playing the heavy, like it was my idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They just freaked out. What? Three things yeah. a day? That's it? We, we, we keep these guys busy all day. We got we to just sell records. And it was just, it, it was a panic. But it actually, I feel like for that first tour we did, it helped keep those guys semi-calm and feeling like they were just not exhausted. So they adhered to that. We were able to. Yeah. I don't think that we knew any better. I mean, man, touring's exhausting, right? Especially the older you get. And then you agree to all the press and the meet and greets and the things. And you're just marched from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And by the time you're playing a show, you're zapped. 
and you have to like dig really deep or you drink a lot, right? You start just drinking your way through the rest of the night. Cordy was pretty good at putting putting the brakes on if if it was too much, I suppose. Well, the one other thing I'll say <laughs> is that on the second tour we did, there wasn't as much press. There wasn't as much demand. And so I remember Ed O'Brien saying to me, uh, are we still doing that three thing a day? Because we're only getting like one thing a day these days. What's happening? Are you, are you still, Alex, are you still shutting things down? <laughs> they want me to open the spigot. And yeah, it wasn't right. even me. They just, the requests weren't coming. That's just how it is, yeah. Any band would would have gained by having Alex as the tour manager. I once saw him do something that was absolutely breathtaking. We were in L.A., and the Bodines had to play a Nickelodeon award show or something. The Kids' Choice Awards. Mm. They were trying to get them to the stage, and Alex just stood there like a monolith, and he would not pass the word on to the band. He just sat there and... That was like the most frantic thing. Like car after car was coming. We need the Bodines now. And I was like, too early, too early, too early. I saw it for 40 minutes and they were just like an endless procession of panicked PR people. And it was it was just beautiful. <laughs> Are you still tour managing? No. <laughs> I'm like, wait a sec. You sound like our guy. Those were the kind of jobs I would get is the all the ball buster jobs before we had any tour managers were my job. Is that right? So somebody wasn't trying, like we did a show down in LA at God knows where, some tiny shithole, and and you're doing those tours just to get enough gas and a burrito to the next town. And they were like, no, you you know, you didn't bring in enough people. And so there's no money for you. And I didn't realize LA is kind of pay to play than other cities. And we got in the car and everyone's telling me and we're all bummed. So I ran back in there and I stood in the back door, like half in, half out because I'm the girl, so they can't get physical with me, right? Uh, I said, no, you you didn't promote us right. You didn't get anybody in here. We're not from here. What do you mean? How are we supposed to promote? That's your job. It's your club. You get people. <laughs> and they gave us 40 bucks and a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> there I you got, go. I got in the van, and everyone was so stinking happy. <laughs> One of my very favorite little things that we did was they would go, okay, well, come on down to LA. We're going to shoot another ridiculously overpriced video. And it's going to be all this stuff that ends up in a dumpster when you're done shooting the video. And uh, so we were like, no, man, we're from Portland. Let's just shoot that shit up here. This is where we live. And it was also like, they needed all the promo photos and it was all the stuff getting ready for um, Welcome to the Monkey House. And we had just bought the auditorium. And so they're like, well, instead of, you know, I don't remember the money. Instead of 80000 you get 40000 Okay. Great. <laughs> we get 40000 to do whatever we want with. So we brought up this photographer. And so we would go to like an antique thing at the convention center. And he would take pictures of us buying jewelry and buying velvet couches. And we get to keep the stuff and, and we get to use the photos. And then as we outfit the auditorium, we would go, we need an industrial kitchen in here. So let's get a frying pan with a fake egg in it and put that scene in the video. So then that pays for everything in the scene. And that's how we did all of our interior decorating. And the Portland Tourist Bureau gave you a kickback on that too, right? They, <laughs> they should have. They got behind you. At the end of it, we had like, I don't know, a couple grand left and I just bought my house. So it wasn't fixed up yet, right? So it's perfect time for just an absolute rager. The basement was still dirt floor with Visqueen <laughs> plastic. So I just strung Christmas lights everywhere. We had a 
full bar setup. We spent $500 on liquor, 100 hits of ecstasy, a couple eight balls of cocaine, two cartons of cigarettes, DJs on the main floor, DJs in the basement, you know, playing Velvet Underground and shit, not like mm, mm, DJs. Um, and we had the rippinest party, you know, the party went until whenever, and I've never even attempted such a party again, all on the capital budget. How do you expense ecstasy on your expense report? That was not my job. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't done that, that many of these interviews, Zia, but I mean, I, this is the first time we've had criminal activity uh, admitted to. So, uh, Oh, well, am I supposed to? <laughs> <laughs> Man, oh, come and get me. That was 25 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Statue of limitation. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you about that, that auditorium album. Was that an FU album to get off the label or something like that or like fulfill your contractual obligation? So that was the last album we did with them. So what I remember is the regime change kept happening. We could tell we weren't wanted. We didn't fit. And we were like, man, just cut us loose. You know, you're not into us. We're not into you. We don't even know you. What's your name again? When did you start working here? Get us out of here. And they were like, no, yeah. you're making another record. I have such a shit memory for this kind of stuff. But um I think that was after auditorium and then the next one we started and then we got dropped. That's what happened. So we did auditorium. That's just us being us. I mean, of course, we're not going to do anything that Capital says, but we're not going to specifically make a record. Well, maybe we would. Yeah, I don't know about that. Maybe we may. Maybe some of it was to make Capital mad. Um, but we started the next one. And so that triggers the budget. Right. And they dropped us after we'd already started recording. So they had to give us the recording budget for that album. It had already been initiated. And you know, bands leave owing money right. forever. They're going to be selling off the CDs and vinyl they pressed and get your residuals forever until you've paid them back. We left with them owing us a quarter mil. Wow. And we took that money and we burned through it pretty fast. We didn't split it up or anything, but we just didn't know quite how, you know, it's like when your parents are paying for everything and all of a sudden you got to pay for your own shit. And it's like, it costs a lot and it goes away fast and <laughs> mixing this and shooting this and the money was gone. But it was quite the miracle that we got dropped and got to take all the money and just keep outfitting our studio and keep working on our own and have been relatively independent ever since. So we were thinking about this idea of, of second acts. Alan and I were both in bands and gave it our best shot. You know, I did the tour managing thing and moved on to, I guess I'm on my fifth, I don't know what career I'm on at this point. You have gotten a real estate license and broker's license and, and are, are doing that. And maybe you'll remember, there's a scene in This is Spinal Tap where they're kind of at the end of their tour. Nigel Tufnell has already left the band. And David St. Hubbins and Derek Smalls are talking about what they're going to do next, mm -hmm. right? And they really do kind of feel the end is mm -hmm. nigh, right? And they're talking about the different projects they want to have never been able to do and Saucy Jack, they want to do something on you mm -hmm. know, a musical or, or something along those lines. So Jack the Ripper. Right. Tell us about your second act, the fact that you went and you did get what Bill would consider to be a real job in addition to continue to be a musician. What, what's that been like? 
Well, I started to see just sort of what our arc as a band and our career looked like and overlay that over reality. And I don't think that that's something that artists tend to do. And I think they're usually caught quite by surprise when it's time to hurry and figure something out. And I have a family to support and I didn't want to be caught by surprise if this band no longer was my only financial source of income, if that wasn't enough all of a sudden. And so, you know, I tossed and turned about it. It really was a pretty stressful little piece of reality to ingest, but I wanted to be prepared. And I thought, you know, you joined the band when you're 18. So what I did one year of college of welding and nutrition. <laughs> Trades though. You were, you were learning a trade. Yeah. <laughs> Computers came to my school the year after I left. So I took keyboarding and uh, I thought, well, you're technically skillless. This is, kind of scary. I, I have created a middle-class income lifestyle that is going to be very hard to maintain. I have no way to make the same amount of money, basically. And real estate was really the only thing on the list. And the only thing that would dovetail with a continuing music career, because I didn't want it to stop. And so I, I slugged it out doing the most boring thing I've ever done in my life, which was take the classes for a real estate license. It was brutal. Everyone's having fun on tour. And I'm like, should I just be having fun with these guys? What if there aren't that many more tours? And, you know, in cafes with the headphones on as loud as they can be with binaural beats so I can like <laughs> have my brain waves working while I say, take a quiz before the show, take a quiz after the show. But I'm in it for four years now, and I've closed a deal every time I've left town with the band. I'll be in the bathroom after the show, hammering out repair negotiations and then running off to a DJ and after party. And so it's a next level of intense. I very much resented having to bring work on tour. Tour is typically an escape from life in general, right? but also just immense gratitude for being able to dovetail a second career with the Dandy Warhols, with DJ Rescue, of course, with my other two musical side projects, Brush Prairie and August Darlings. Yeah, it's a wild ride and it's super awesome. And it saved my ass during the pandemic. When I read about you becoming a realtor, it reminded me of one of my early tours where I was with this little band out of the UK called Balloon. We ended up in, in Bearsville, New York. And went out for a meal with the guy who was the manager of the, of the Bearsville Theater. We were it was at a club and there was a band playing. He pointed to the sound man and said, that guy was in the Psychedelic Furs. Mm. And I thought to myself, that is bizarre. It's like, isn't he a multimillionaire? Right. Why is he mixing sound in this little nothing club? Now, maybe he was a multimillionaire living in Woodstock and, and doing that for fun. Right. But my assumption was he's broke. He has no money. How could that be? At that point, I was new enough to the music business. I did not know how the money flows. Or or doesn't. <laughs> or doesn't, as it were. Because my assumption was anybody who's been in a major little band, especially one that you know of that's had hits, they must be set for life. Right? Yeah, that is not the case. And of course, there's also the story of people who did make a boatload of money and they just MC hammered it, right? right. <laughs> is that a verb? It is now. 
But, you know, I think the thing is, is that, you know, how many musicians do we know that are one trick ponies? I mean, that was their dream. I'm going to get girls. I'm going to make money and I'm going to be in a band out of high school and I'll never cultivate any other skills. Maybe I won't even go to college. And almost everybody. I could name like a lot of those. Yeah, I, you know, I, I actually quit music to become a comedy writer to go from one impractical journey to the next impractical <laughs> journey. And then I took three years off and started a vegan cheese company here. So I'm a renaissance failure. <laughs> but, you know, there's like there's like so many people I know, like all these guys I know are still bashing it out and they don't really have anything else to do. And it's so sad because not only that, they don't get a family. Yeah. You know, I just had a friend, a really dear friend of mine who was in a band called Broken Homes, Michael Doman. He was a beautiful guy, uh, but, you know, he got sick and he died during COVID of super nuclear palsy and he had no family to take care of him. I was helping take care of him with another girl and it was really sad. And it's like this dream that just never materializes and it's great to have a plan B. You really have to. Of course, it's great to have a plan B, but you also have to think of how much more there is to it. It's not just people that showed up because they wanted to make music. It's broken people. Yeah. that showed up and didn't know what else to do. And I mean, if you want to talk about Dig, I think that that's something that Dig really demonstrated is instead of viewing us as the success hungry people and looking at those guys as the true starving artists, look at us as all parents that are married and we weren't as damaged as badly going in. And the Jonestown guys were all so broken and from much more messed up backgrounds. And so most of those guys don't really have plan Bs, right? Right. And we all have our plan Bs. And so that's just sort of the people that are attracted to this world of music. Say something about Brush Prairie, because I got to say, I was confused. I thought that you were involved with Black Prairie. That's a country group too, right? Brush Prairie, I see as my retirement project, not in the way that it's going to pay for my living while I'm retired, but that I will always have music in my life. Brush Prairie is me and whoever does songs with me. Maybe we'll do a fundraiser. Maybe we'll play a street fair. Maybe we'll play a party. We've done little tours and it's been a blast, but I wanted to get back to the real concept of playing music. I wanted to play and I didn't want to work music. And I wanted something that was just this relief and easy and fun. And I have a, a real kind of twangy Western style to my voice. So I didn't really have a choice what kind of music I was going to do. Um, <laughs> and Willie Nelson is like the, my favorite person in the world. I just want to tell you one anecdote about, so I was, I went to a wedding with Al Gore's daughter, Sarah. And so we go to the um, Beverly Hills Hilton for her wedding. And, you know, there's George Schultz there and, you know, Bill Clinton wasn't there, but people like Bill Clinton were there. All of a sudden I'm seeing like these, like these hillbillies like hanging around. I'm like, what the hell's going on? All of a sudden the musical guest for the wedding, Willie Nelson. No. Yeah, for like 200 of us. We're like, oh I didn't God. know that. Uh, so do we end this with my Willie Nelson story? Please. Okay, so 
I grew up in a log cabin that my dad built. You know, one of my best memories is redheaded stranger being on on Sunday and me being big enough to bring my dad his coffee in the morning, right? Feeling really like I didn't spill it. And that's how far back Willie Nelson goes for me. And we were playing Glastonbury, our first time at Glastonbury Festival. And my hair had just grown back long enough to put in braids. So I was putting it in two braids going, oh, it's like Willie. And someone comes up to me and goes, Willie Nelson's on the main stage. It's like two in the afternoon. And I am like, drop my shit. What? And I remember trying to change my pants where you tr- you think that one time you can change your pants without taking your shoes off. <laughs> it never works. It no. never, you're stuck halfway. Now it takes twice as long. I'm getting my pants, getting nothing. I've got my bubbles. I've got my stuff. We get over there and there's, it's super sparse. There's hardly anybody watching because it's Willie and, and Glassenberry. Amazing. He's not a cultural icon there. And I am watching him and he's got trigger guitar and I start bawling. I couldn't believe. And his music was infused in so many of my childhood memories and the Stardust record, all of it. I never, there was never any love lost for Willie, only more love every year. And I'm blowing bubbles. I don't know why I was so into bubbles at the time, but I, I, blew, <laughs> I blew them all over David Bowie's stage that night too. You can see him if you watch the videos. Oh. Um, and he walks off stage and we're on the second stage. And Travis, my husband, goes, go say hi to him. And I'm already in such an emotional state. And so I make myself go over there. And by the time I get to him, I am completely hyperventilating. I cannot get a word out to this man. And I'm going, I, I just, 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 just. And I can't, I can't get the words out to tell him how much I love him, how much he means to me, how amazing it is that he's playing here that we're going to go play on this other stage if you want to come over (laughs) i'm trying to get all these things out he hugged me and i couldn't believe that he would hug such a snotty tear-covered freak right (laughs) like i seemed like where is security why is somebody not stopping me from being in this guy's (laughs) face right now And I leave just humiliated. I'm so embarrassed. I've blown this chance to have an authentic interaction as from one musician to another who grew up caring so much about him and his music. And as I'm walking down the path to the other stage, I'm thinking, we're just coming up, right? We're just starting to be touring in Europe. And I'm like, you know, there's no way anybody could ever care about me the way that I care about Willie, right? There's just, I, I haven't been around long enough. I'm, I'm not Willie Nelson. I'm never going to be Willie Nelson. But if anybody ever approaches me in that state, I am going to show as much grace and compassion and understanding as Willie did. And that's my thing I'm going to decide. And so we had been giving out these straw hats, little straw cowboy hats with Dandy Warhol badges on them as part of our like promo merch. And we sit with a, uh, a friend from the label and he brings us some um, absinthe. We're drinking just a little bit of absinthe in the afternoon. We get on stage. We're playing our show and it's been kind of cloudy off and on all day. And we start to play good morning and it just touches me the way that it would touch an audience member. And the clouds started to part and the sun came out. And I could see people hugging each other in the audience and like balloons floating off into the sky. And it was just this beautiful magical Glastonbury moment. And at the end, I get on the mic and I'm like, you guys, it's so beautiful to see you out there. I just met Willie Nelson, David Bowie side stage watching our show at this point, right? We haven't met him yet, but that's all going on. And I don't even care. And I just thanked everybody for being so beautiful and for having us there. And I was so filled with gratitude. And 
And maybe the little bit of the absinthe made things sparklier, but I wasn't inebriated, right? And I walked off the stage feeling like I couldn't possibly feel better about life. I blew it with Willie, but I still did meet Willie. And there's a cyclone fence separating us from the audience. And there is a girl on the other side losing her shit. She's bawling. And her friend is with her. And I'm like, what could possibly be wrong today? And I walk over. Her friend is like, she loves you so much. She's just completely freaked out that you're here. She can't even believe it. She's just such a huge fan. I'm so sorry that she's like so upset. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got you. And I came around the fence and I put my hat on her and I held her. And I said, look, I don't understand this. I can't possibly understand how you could feel this way about me, but I do know how you feel. I just met Willie Nelson. <laughs> he treated me with the same kindness, and there is no way that I thought literally an hour and a half later I would be fulfilling this promise to the heavens that I had made to be this compassionate rock star and not a stuck-up rock star that didn't want to be close to their fans. And that has stayed with me, and it is the way that I have treated the people that love me and love my music for all of these years, because I still hold out hope that one day, again, I will actually just get to meet Willie in a casual manner and pass a joint and not be a complete mess. <laughs> but I do appreciate the gift that he gave me. That was a beautiful way to end this. You EQ meter off the charts. <laughs> so Zia, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, really, you know, generosity yeah. of your time, your stories, the conversation, really a pleasure. Awesome. Have me back sometime. Alex, that last story Zia shared with us was really important. It was almost like Zia McCabe, the rock star, descended from the stage and let down her guard for the moment and, and shared some real emotion with her fans. Yeah, I got to be honest. I was really moved. It is so genuine. It is so authentic. And it really ties well into our theme for this episode around that notion of what is reality and what is performance. For an artist, I think it's always really easy to kind of keep that persona up all the time as a protection, as kind of the way that they feel like they're expected to be. I remember that Johnny Ramone, used to say that when he and his girlfriend would would go to the grocery store, he couldn't carry the groceries home because what if some fans saw Johnny Ramone carrying groceries? That wouldn't fit the <laughs> image, right? So she had to be the one carrying the groceries. When you're in a band, you're really pretending to be this person, right? I mean, how many people have you met, musicians that could never let down that facade? Yeah. You know, my experience with musicians who are on tour, who are up in front of thousands of people every night who are engaging with fans backstage or out in the world, they're under a lot of pressure to live up to some expectation. Like all of us, Zia's human. She very likely couldn't have been that vulnerable all the time. It's hard to last 27 years in the band and have that sort of vulnerability all day, every day. But when those moments break through it, it's really quite wonderful and something that, that can be inspiring to all of us. Even from my own experience, I found out years later, fans and other musicians thought I was unapproachable. And I didn't even know that. And I think partially it was because I felt very uncomfortable on stage. And partially it was because I was kind of crafting this image of this more stoic musician. Think about how many interactions I lost out on by being that way. I don't even know. There's that line from that great Rush song, Limelight, where he says, I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. 
even though someone comes up to you who is just gushing with adoration, it's just, it puts people in an awkward position. It's just, it's yep. not a natural thing. And it probably is really hard to get used to and to be gracious. And again, what Zia shared about Willie Nelson is about as gracious as you can imagine. And an important reminder that we all have these personas that we use as protection in different situations. And there's a lot to be gained by letting down our guard sometimes and just being real. This is Alan Keller talking now, not Rum Dillion. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) We want to thank Zia for sharing her Spinal Tap moments so honestly and transparently with us and with you, our listeners. And as always, thanks to those creative forces of nature who brought Spinal Tap into the world in the first place. We know that they and their alter egos, Derek, Nigel, David, Marty are the real thing. Find their music on your favorite streaming service, buy the film This Is Spinal Tap on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and elsewhere, and please soak it all in. It'll make all the inside jokes in this podcast that much more fun, practical, and useful in your day-to-day life. This episode is edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow Too Much Epping Perspective on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media. And to learn more about the series and us, the Bumbling Hosts, visit our website, tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. On behalf of Alan Keller and me, Alex Hoffman, thank you for listening. We're going to send you off with a song, Remember My Name, from my band, The Vainglorious, co-written with epic Milwaukee guitarist Howard Bishop Ellis. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. What great acts of charity make you turn your head? All crimes against humanity, notice me instead. Or I could star in movies, or walk on the moon. Write the songs of love, and make the young hearts soon. What can I do to make you? Remember my name Explorations and excursions To the North Pole or Tibet The kind that make the headlines Then could you forget Or a cure for cancer Is something I could find A medal from the president might keep me in your mind. What can I do to make you remember my name? What can I do? What can I do to make you remember my name?
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com, and I'll see you there. Evergreen Podcast Network.